and good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Today, celebrating the feast of John Paul II, there's no doubt uh, one of the uh, titans of uh, Catholic history and uh, uh, a pontificate that we were able to live uh, under and within. Many of us wondering what would he be thinking today as he looks over the uh, Catholic Church. My guest, George Weigel, is positioned uh, to actually know more about this than any of us. He was the man who did the uh, award-winning biography, uh, Witness to Hope, and then The End and the Beginning. Uh, He's the author of The Irony of Modern Catholic History. He's also authored The Next Pope. Most recently, George has been with me to talk about uh, his book, uh, a book that he edited, Jesuit at Large, a collection of the essays and reviews of uh, the late uh, Paul Menkowski. George, good to have you with me. Thanks. Thank you, Al. Um, Happy Feast Day. Um, Perhaps I might begin by offering a modest correction to your news report. (laughs) There are no moderate Democrats. (laughs) There are liberal Democrats, and there are very liberal Democrats. (laughs) But this notion that there are moderates, as that term was once understood, in the Democratic Party, even people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema is really quite silly. That's Washington Post talk. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, Joe Biden used are. to be How considered. Joe Biden used to be considered moderate, right? Yeah. Well, you know, look at his voting record <laughs> right. and look at look at the ratings from uh, narrow pro-choice America sure. for these people and see what you get. Yeah. Yeah. They're not moderate at all. Uh, so on this not issue on of that life, issue they yeah. Aren't. Well, let's. Uh, I'm doing well, by the way, and I think that uh, I, yesterday, late yesterday afternoon, I was thinking it'd be great if we could get together to talk about St. John Paul II's th- thoughts regarding the papacy. Um, and you're the guy I, I thought would know more than anybody about this. What, what would he regard as, where would he begin a discussion of what would make for a good pope? In here in the 21st century? Uh, Al, I obviously can't speak for the late Pope, but if you look at the way he conducted his own uh, Petrine ministry, uh, the thing that uh, is, I think, particularly striking about it is, first of all, that he prayed his way into every great decision that he made. Um, John Paul II lived out of his life of prayer. He thought out of his life of prayer. He um, initiated things in the life of the Church uh, out of his life of prayer. And uh, if if you don't understand that about him, you, you really just don't get get the man. He he prayed his way into his exercise of the office of Peter. Mm-hmm. Uh, The second thing that I think is most striking about this is how uh, well he understood what he didn't know. Uh, And that is why he surrounded himself for almost 26 years, until his physical circumstances made this impossible, at breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day with a rotating cast of characters, from all over the world, who would uh, keep him informed about the 
life of the church, public life, cultural life, uh, all over the world. I mean, he he got the usual press briefings and the usual reports from Vatican embassies around the world, but he he knew he needed more. And he knew that he had to keep learning in order to be the servant of the servants of God. Mm-hmm. Um, Henry Kissinger once said that in, in high office you spend down intellectual capital. You don't build it up. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's an element of truth in that. But John Paul II kept building up his base of yeah. knowledge. Yeah. Uh, for over two decades, and I think that um, uh, made him as uh, compelling and and effective uh, as he was. But the first point is the crucial point, the the deep, uh, intense life of prayer, asking constantly the, the same question every morning, what is the Lord asking of me today? You know, and sometimes the answers he got, I imagine, were not altogether agreeable. Right. But, uh, right. Yeah. Uh, he had the courage to uh, follow through on on his on what he challenged all the rest of us to do um, on October twenty second, nineteen seventy eight. Be not afraid. Yeah. Yeah. Open the doors to Christ. And I guess that would be the third thing I would say. Never forget. Uh, he would say to any future successor, never forget that you are a priest and bishop. Never forget that you're a baptized Christian. Uh, don't imagine yourself the exec, chief executive of a non-governmental organization in the business of good works. Right. Uh, that's not who you are. That's not what the Catholic Church is. Uh, and your works will only be effective if they emerge out of that fundamental task of the Church, which is to witness to Christ and proclaim the Gospel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He never forgot uh, that he was first and fundamentally a radically converted disciple of Christ. I mean, that that's what we all strive to be, and we have that, we can strive to have that in common with him. That's right. He, uh, uh, there's a great moment, I think, that captures this. It's during those nine remarkable days in June 1979, when he goes back to Poland for the first time as Pope. Um, I think it was June 9th. Uh, it was either the 8th or 9th or uh, 8th or the 9th. He goes to this little town of Wadowice, where he grew up, and he goes to the parish church. Um, and, you know, this is where... He had made his first communion. This is where he was confirmed. This is where he was an altar boy. This is where he (laughs) prayed on Sundays and during the day. And what does he do? He makes a beeline to the baptismal font, and he kneels down and kisses it. (laughs) And there's, in that church today, by that baptismal font, a photo of that moment. Mm -hmm. That's very revelatory. It tells us that he understood that that baptismal day was the most important day of his life. Uh, That was the day that he became a friend of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the day that made everything else possible. His priestly ordination, his episcopal consecration, his papacy, none of that is possible 
without that baptism, and everything was an expression of that of that baptism. So, uh, when when our friends and listeners go to Vadovica, it's very. Uh, mo- I think they'll find it very moving yes. to go to that uh, church. I've been there, and, and I agree. Uh, see that, see that baptismal font. Yeah, it's exactly it's, where it was. It's magnificent. In and the 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 um, uh, also the museum, which is uh, next door there. Um, would he? Would he? What would he? What do you think he would see as significant changes? in the world that the church is witnessing to. Uh, He's been, you know, uh, we've had the two popes since uh, his passing. What What would he think would be the most significant change that Catholics are facing, in the Western world in particular? If you look at his apostolic letter of 2003, Ecclesia in Europa, the Church in Europe, it's a kind of report card on what had happened, not simply in Europe, but throughout the Western world, since the revolution of 1989 and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. And, you know, he says there's light and there are shadows, and I think the shadows have gotten darker and extended their reach over the landscape rather more since then. And uh, there, in that apostolic letter in 2003, he identified some of the danger signals, the collapsing uh, birth rates uh, throughout the Western world, uh, which seemed to him to uh, speak a lack of generosity towards the future, a lack of confidence in the future. Um, the uh, dispiritedness of people who had abandoned biblical religion but had not found anything to fill the gap created by the loss of the God of the Bible in their lives. Uh, And I think he would see a lot of this, if you will, cashing out, throughout the Western world today. Yeah. He understood uh, very, very well that if you imagine the human condition to be infinitely plastic and malleable, you're going to create a lot of trouble. Right. Uh, he would be appalled by gender ideology and now the trans movement, but he would not be surprised by it. Because this is, in a sense, the illogical, logical playing out of the notion that there are no things as they are. There are no givens in the human condition. Mm-hmm. Even the givens defined by our chromosomes. Yeah. 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 And he would understand that this is going to lead to an immense amount of human suffering and that the church has to lift up a nobler possibility, a nobler vision of human possibility. We're better than the sum total of our immediate desires. So would he then see that the, one of the problems that human beings have is that they've, they've desired too little rather than too much. Uh, they've, they've settled for this kind of... Uh, 
cosmetic nihilism uh, rather than to desire the fulfillment that one can have in Christ. Uh, Absolutely true, and that is why he understood that the new evangelization, the Church recovering its core identity as an evangelical and missionary enterprise, was an essential part of implementing the Church's social doctrine. Until you recover in the Western world uh, the Jerusalem pillar of the great Western civilizational project, we've talked about this dozens of times before, the West uh, is built on the pillars of Jerusalem, Athens, and Rome. Uh, Biblical religion, Greek confidence and reason, Roman law. Uh, if that Jerusalem pillar goes, everything else starts getting wobbly and starts to crumble. Right. Uh, so to proclaim the God of the Bible, uh, incarnate in Jesus Christ, uh, is to create the conditions for the possibility of civilizational uh, vitality and cultural reform. So it all goes together. Yeah. George Holder, we'll take a break, continue the conversation, looking at uh, how... What advice St. John Paul II might give today uh, as the Church considers the next Pope? Uh, What are the characteristics? What uh, strengths does he need to have? How has the world changed? George Weigel, my guest, we continue on with the next Pope. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, George Weigel, we are taking a look at the, this feast day of St. John Paul II, we're taking a look at how he might advise on the next pope. What uh, should he be concerned about? Uh, what should be uh, on his agenda? We started out by uh, pointing out that the thing most uh, would be most obvious is that he would expect that the next pope would be a man of deep prayer, uh, a person who saw his fundamental identity as a disciple of Christ. He would also be someone who uh, was a constant, a continual learner. He knew what he didn't know. And um, we also uh, needed, would need somebody who has extraordinary courage. Um, George, I, you mentioned this in the first segment. We talked a little bit about the crisis of the human person. Uh, you know, it's been... It, for a while, there's been a circulation, this little formula that in the uh, the cultural leaders in the uh, 18th century began to fear that Scripture was dead. In the 19th century, they began to fear that God is dead. In the 20th century, they realized man was also dead. And in the 21st century, they're trying to figure out how to bury man and come up with something new. Um, what does this crisis of the human person, is that at the, the heart of the, the next uh, pontificate? Is that going to have to be continued, continually faced? I think so, Al, in the sense that it is both the single most corrosive force, uh, certainly in the Western world today, um, And it's uh, perhaps the single biggest impediment to the proclamation of the gospel. So we've got to figure out 
a way to address this. And, you know, Savonarola 2.0 is not going to be the answer to this. <laughs> no. um, there are a lot of voices in the church who think, you know, let's have a few more bonfires of the vanities and all will be fine. That isn't going to do it. Right. Um, I do think the next pope, and I indicate this in the book of that title, uh, has to understand that there is uh, what I call the iron law of Christianity and modernity at work here, which is that Christian communities that maintain a clear sense of their doctrinal and moral identity and values their doctrinal and moral uh, identity and teaching can not only survive modernity, they can flourish in it, and they provide the answer to what ails the modern world most deeply. Christian communities that cannot tell you really what they believe or really how they think we ought to live, what makes for righteous living, um, wither and die. Yeah. Um, this is true across the spectrum of of uh, Christianity. Yeah. We saw it and with mainline Protestantism. Un- yeah, exactly. And if and if you don't understand that the living parts of the Catholic Church throughout the world are the parts that have understood that, that have embraced Catholicism in full, that are joyfully proclaiming the gospel. You know, are you know, under various sorts of pressure, but they're not withering and dying. It's the Catholic light parts of the Catholic Church that are withering and dying. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in this book, The Last Pope, I, I have even extended my Coca-Cola metaphor of Catholic light to say that Catholic light leads to Catholic zero, <laughs> because I think that's exactly true. I think that's the empirical fact of the matter. Um, I won't tell you how that comes out in the several of the languages in which this book is translated, <laughs> but <laughs> in any I event, um, I think that's that's a bottom line. Uh, on any pontificate of the future. You have to understand that the Catholic Light Project, which is now turning the Catholic Church in Germany into a kind of weak simulacrum of liberal Protestantism. It isn't even intellectually serious liberal Protestantism. While I've got you... It's a failure. While you've brought that up, let me ask you, what the heck happened over there? They shut the thing down. What happened? I, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I think, uh, I hope, that the Episcopal leadership of the German Church, which has not shown a lot of spine throughout this process, finally realized when the deliberative body that is uh, running this synod voted by a small majority, but nonetheless a majority, to debate the question of whether priests were necessary in the Catholic Church, that this had gone completely off the ledge, and it was time to take the pause that refreshes here. Yeah. There's something pretty, there's something quite humorous about that. I mean, it's tragic in one respect, but I mean, I can see the bishops uh, 
I see the bishops calling this this council and having people sit and pontificate and deliberate and come up with uh, what they think is necessary uh, going forward. And uh, what the what the people decide is that bishops are unnecessary. I mean, yeah, there's something well, ironic is, about uh, that. It's it, look. This is going to repeat itself in Australia, in what they're calling a plenary council process down there, and it is going to, uh, unless something or somebody puts a halt to it, it's going to be one of the dynamics in the lead up to the. Uh, World Synod of Bishops in 2023. The Catholic Church does not need to sit around with all of us asking each other, what do we believe? That's been defined. That's settled. The Catechism of the Catholic Church is still available. Read it. That's what we believe. The, The question that we need to be talking to each other about is how are we going about proclaiming that? Not not asking ourselves, well, do we really believe this, and do we really believe that? And and then this utter nonsense, like this German business, about, well, you know, um, do we really need priests? One facet of this, Al, that I don't think we've talked about before, is the Catholic left weaponizing the abuse crisis to deconstruct the Church. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if we have all these awful things going on, and they were awful things, yep, there must be something fundamentally flawed here. Wrong. The reason those awful things were going on is because Catholic light prevailed. Yeah, it was in certainly. Um, yeah, I, I, this this whole uh, this whole business. I, I don't see how it, it. There's no logical reason why it should. Indicate that the, these were the fa- this were, these were failures of particular priests and uh, various bishops whose governance uh, was weak uh, and uh, too too compromising. I mean, you look over the story of uh, John Gagan and Cardinal Law in Boston, and the number of times that uh, Gagan was sent to various therapy. I think there were six times he was sent out for various therapy, and he came back at least five of those times with a clean bill of health. That's crazy. But that's not an argument against the Catholic priesthood. James Carroll in The Atlantic had this article, Abolish the Priesthood. And I'm saying to myself, what kind of Catholic thinks that you can abolish the priesthood and still maintain the Catholic faith? It's it's lunacy. Well, I'm I'm afraid Jim Carroll declared his apostasy a long time ago. He's yeah. um, uh, a very sad uh, case, and uh, it was scandalous for a um, putatively intelligent magazine of cultural commentary yeah, right. to not only run that piece, but make it the cover story. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. this is just completely uh, crazy. Uh, I mean, why don't you run a cover story saying, you know, shall we play baseball with a bat and a ball? <laughs> that's what. You know? That's true. That's true. Should the Astros and the Red Sox use a bat and a ball tonight? Maybe that would be the you know the web homepage of the Atlantic today. <laughs> Get rid of the bat, the ball. You don't have baseball anymore. Get rid of the priesthood. You don't have the Catholic Church anymore. Uh, 
Pope John Paul II, you say, uh, really spent a lot. He had a sense of what he didn't know, as, as brilliant as he was and as uh, studious as he had been. He always wanted to know better what was going on. Uh, how, I mean, with, with Pope Francis, uh, we have somebody who had not visited the United States, uh, was not, did not speak English. Uh, and to me, that, that struck me as a little strange uh, because of the enormous influence of the United States around the world and the prevalence of English. How, how much does a pope, how well equipped does a pope have to be in languages and, uh, you know, uh, world culture to be a pope? It, it certainly helps, Al. I, I, uh, in my personal experiences with, with Pope Francis, he actually has much better English than he thinks he does. Mm, okay. um, but, uh, I mean, he's not comfortable with it, but he's, he gets it. Yeah, okay. Um, I, I do think uh, a broad um, cultural and uh, political, in the broadest sense of the term, experience is, is very helpful. Um, but um, uh, even a, a pope of a more limited life experience could be a man who understands that he needs to gather around himself on a regular basis um, people who will speak candidly to him mm -hmm. about how they understand the particular situations that they're familiar with. One, one of the great mythologies of the present pontificate is that uh, Pope Francis, uh, by living in the Casa Santa Marta, you know, is in touch with a lot of people. That is nonsense. Uh, he's the security is is every bit as tight, if not tighter, yeah. than it was when uh, John Paul II and Benedict XVI lived in the Apostolic Palace. Uh, the Pope, I'm told, eats with mostly the same people all the time. Mm -hmm. He does not invite in the kind of um, you know rolling cast of characters that John Paul II mm -hmm. had at his okay. table. And uh, I think. Uh, future popes would be uh, well advised to make sure that they're in touch with a broad range of, yeah. of human personalities. My guest is George Weigel. Our topic today, the next pope. John Paul II's feast day is today. We're asking, what would he envision uh, for the next pope? What characteristics, what qualities? Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, George Weigel, on this feast day of St. John Paul II. He's the author of The Next Pope, The Office of Peter and the Church in Mission, uh, as well as, well as uh, the irony of modern Catholic history. And we're talking about the kind of pope that John Paul II might uh, recommend uh, for our future. Uh, in the book, The Next Pope, uh, we, last time we just met, we mentioned James, Carroll James Carroll's pathetic article uh, that appeared in the Atlantic called Abolish the Priesthood. But in the book, The Next Pope, George, you talk about the next pope must strengthen both the episcopate and reform the priesthood. What are some of those uh, reforms, and has Pope Francis begun uh, moving in that direction? 
I think there has been considerable seminary reform in the Catholic Church, certainly in the United States, mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me, since um, uh, the revelations of clerical sexual abuse began to cascade down upon us in 2002. American seminaries today are in far, far, far better condition than they were uh, 25 years ago, even 15 years ago. That That's an essential part of the process of reforming the priesthood. Uh, I have believed for years that um, uh, we need to rethink the criteria by which men are selected for the episcopate. Yeah. Uh, assuming orthodoxy, which always has to be checked out. Sure. Uh, the the first requisite for a bishop in this day and age is, is he an effective evangelist? Because if he isn't, he's going to be presiding over the slow or rapid decline of his diocese. Uh, bishops have to be chosen who can grow the church, not simply manage decline right. in a humane way. And, you know, you know that by seeing whether a man's parish has grown under his leadership, whether the seminary he's led has produced uh, good uh, young uh, priests, Mm -hmm. whether the campus ministry he's led has been flourishing. There there are lots of empirical measures of this. So I I think that would be extremely helpful going forward. I also recommend in this little book, The Next Pope, uh, that the consultation process for the uh, selection of bishops be broadened. Uh, now, such as it is, uh, it's almost exclusively other bishops and uh, some clergy. Uh, lay people see things in a man, for good and for ill, that fellow clergy often do not see. Mm. And I think a discreet, confidential conversation with uh, lay people who have the good of the church at heart uh, would help in surfacing candidates uh, for for the episcopate. Otherwise, uh, the episcopate becomes a self-perpetuating men's club, right. and that's not exactly what we're looking for here. Yeah. Um, so I think some of those tweaks in the process uh, would be uh, would be helpful. Yeah. Speaking of laity, uh, you know, there's been uh, certainly we've seen uh, the laity uh, become more active since the Second Vatican Council. I like to point out that the whole phenomenon of Catholic radio is really largely a lay-driven uh, enterprise. Um, what uh, what? What can what is the co-responsibility to use Benedict XVI's term? The co-responsibility of the laity mean to the next pope? What it ought to mean is that part of his job description, which was laid out very succinctly by the Lord Himself in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, and you, Peter, when you are converted, you must go and strengthen your brethren. Uh, The strengthening of the lay brethren means uh, igniting throughout the world church a sense of responsibility for evangelism. Catholics are taking a long time to figure out that we all have to be missionary disciples. 
mm-hmm. even though John Paul II said this in very eloquent terms in 1991 in the encyclical Redem Torres Missio, the mission of, of the Redeemer. Everyone is a missionary, and every place is mission territory. Uh, Pope Francis began his pontificate lifting this idea up, right. but it seems to have gotten a bit sidelined. Yeah, I um, noticed that. And as I said in a recent column, you know, are we going to be a church in mission or a church in meetings? Because we can't be both. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you're sitting around in meetings asking, what do we really believe? Right. You're not getting on with the mission. Yeah, no, it's very true. Um, is there, are there any, uh, are you aware of any canonical issues that need to be addressed in order to uh, help the laity exercise co-responsibility? No, not really, but that may be because I'm uh, rather ignorant of Catholic <laughs> law. Uh, <Fair> enough. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think. I don't think there, there are canonical problems here. I think there's a. I think there's a psychological and spiritual problem, and the two are probably connected, in in the sense that um, uh, many, even quite faithful and observant lay Catholics still haven't caught the idea that the quality of their discipleship is is not measured simply by mass attendance, personal piety, mm-hmm. personal prayer life. It's how many people have you brought to Christ yeah. or brought back to Christ, yeah. beginning with your own family. Right, right. I mean, that's, that's the measure. And uh, we need to talk about that. Uh, we need to talk about that uh, some more, it seems uh, to me. Yeah, it seems. I, I, I've noticed uh, in, in uh, certain times that uh, lay, there's a certain kind of lay clericalism that's in operation where laity kind of position themselves uh, to become the good boy or good girl in relationship to a particular priest or even a bishop. And uh, there's not real human engagement there. Uh, it's It's a matter of uh, you know, the sycophantic behavior, uh, and I think there's something, some lingering weirdness from clergy lay the clergy laity distinction that I think is unhealthy. I was speaking uh, recently to a large group, several hundred people of prominently placed Catholics in the eastern part of the United States, and I gave my standard presentation on how we have become the Church of the New Evangelization, and this is a great transition from Counter-Reformation, Catholicism, etc., etc., things you and I have talked about many Mm -hmm. times. And during the Q&A, somebody says, okay, what do we do? I said, well, it's, it's really a retail question. Invite somebody to Mass with you. Invite somebody to come back to Mass with you or to come with you to Mass. Bring people into your home to show them Bishop Barron's Catholicism series. Uh, Take people to a beautiful Catholic facility like the National Shrine here in Washington. Get the conversation going. And it it has to be retail. You're you're not going to do this on a wholesale basis. That's culture won't let you it's it's got to be retail yeah yeah uh the world of uh ecumenism 
there been there were some great strides made uh, on the doctrine of justification, uh, but it seems as though, at least formally, that the ecumenical initiatives have kind of ground to a halt. Or maybe I'm simply ignorant of those that are going on. Uh, go ahead. It's uh, it's it's we're in a we're in a pause phase uh, in the modern ecumenical movement. Uh, it's very difficult to have uh, serious ecumenical conversations with with dialogue partners who keep moving the goalposts. Yeah. You know, um, when the Anglican Catholic dialogue began. Uh, with great ex- great expectations and hopes immediately after the Second Vatican Council. Uh, Anglican Communion was not ordaining women to the priesthood and the episcopate, right. uh, was not fundamentally redoing its understanding of the nature of marriage. Well, I mean, what are we going to talk about when, when they, the dialogue partner has just changed, it's not so much changed the goalposts, yeah. it's changed the playing field. Um, uh, I think the other thing we have realized uh, painfully uh, in the in the dialogue with Eastern Orthodoxy is that there are centuries of built-up, almost psychological barriers here. I mean, no Catholic of my acquaintance uh, says to themselves, "I am not in full communion with the Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople." as an essential part of their Catholic identity. Right. I mean, do you know anybody who no. says that? I, no. I don't. There are millions of devout Eastern Orthodox uh, in the various forms in which that great spiritual tradition exists for whom the statement, I am not in full communion with the Bishop of Rome, is an essential part of their Orthodox identity. Hmm. And until we get over that, yeah. um, even the uh, relatively small number of remaining doctrinal issues to be sorted out or theological issues to be sorted out are, are just not going to get sorted out as long as that cast of mind is in place. So I think that's been a that was a tough one. I'm not sure John Paul II ever really he must have grasped it, but he didn't want to grasp that because he really hoped to be able to heal the breach of the 11th century by the end of the second millennium. And I think one of the biggest problems with doing that was this cast of mind in much of the Orthodox world that um, the fact that they are not in communion with the Bishop of Rome is an essential part of what it means to be an Orthodox, capital O, Orthodox Christian. Let me jump to a quality that John Paul II had that uh, I wonder if, if future popes uh, ought to have it. Um, he was a rock star. He was a man of the theater. He understood the dramatic gesture. Uh, he had a, a, a virile masculinity, uh, a sportsman. Um, I realize these are you know not qualities that are essential uh, to a disciple's life, but they sure seem to help him in putting forward the gospel. Uh, should we be taking these qualities seriously? Um, it's a very interesting question, Al, because uh, as we get to the end of this conversation, let me say something perhaps a bit surprising, 
and, and that is that I think we need a bit of downsizing in the papacy. <laughs> okay, very good, sure. Um, you know, that, that the papacy has become, in too many Catholics' minds, the sole focus of the Catholic reality. And That's it's true. just not true. Yeah. And people are obsessing on the Pope uh, in a way that is not healthy, uh, is theologically quite odd, and um, maybe it would take a pope with a really vibrant personality, uh, public personality, to say, hey, look, I'm not all that there is <laughs> to the Catholic Church, to you know, get this point across. Yeah. Um, but uh, this, is a, this is a question of balance that, that really needs to be, uh, needs to be pondered um, going uh, forward. Uh, the two most beloved popes of the last 60 years, John the 23rd and John Paul the second yep. canonized on the same day, uh, were entirely different human persons. <laughs> That's true. That's and true. so, you know, there's no one cookie-cutter model here in terms of what what kind of human personality you're looking for. Very good. George, Both thanks so much. Were... Yeah. Thanks, Al. Right, we'll talk, talk to soon. You. Thanks. Well, George Weigel, again, the book that most directly deals with this is uh, The Next Pope, uh, and of course his magnificent biography of John Paul II, and then also The Irony of Modern Catholic History, all very valuable.